We want to explore all sports and competitions on a deeper level in order to understand the less mainstream topics and events. We here at Deep Dive Sports not only want you to walk away having learned something, but for us to have learned something new as well. Now don't get us wrong, we will do our best to cover the big events, but our main goal is to give you a different perspective on some of the overlooked sports and competitions across the globe. We hope you're ready to learn, laugh, and have fun because we are excited to bring you this podcast. Please sit back, relax, and dive deep into these topics with us. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to another great episode of Deep Dive Sports. With the NFL draft coming to Cleveland, Ohio at the end of the month, we wanted to discuss the beloved Cleveland football team, the Browns. So today we are joined by Professor Tony Dick, who has worked with the team both before they left for Baltimore as well as when they returned in 1999. However, before we begin, I would like to hand it off to Tony to allow him to introduce himself. Go right ahead. All right, how you doing? Uh, Tony Dick, I, um, you know, as Dave, as Dave uh, you know, mentioned, I worked for the Cleveland Browns. I started in 1991 as a student here at Baldwin Wallace. Originally started out as a part-time, um, you know, $6 an hour groundskeeper, um, thought maybe I would just take that job, uh, you know, just to pay for some, you know, beer money, incidentals, whatever. And, um, you know, next thing I know, I, you know, I'm, I'm there 21 years with the team. Um, you know, as I was walking out the door, I, I, it was hard for me to, to look back and just comprehend the fact that I had been there that long, 21 years. So started out grounds crew, did that for about 13 years. And then, um, my last eight years, um, you know, eight and a half, nine years worked, uh, with the alumni department and eventually was running that alumni department when I left in, uh, 2015. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, I've lived in the Cleveland area my whole entire life. I wouldn't necessarily say I've been a Browns fan my whole entire life. I, I would be fibbing there a little bit. Grew up um, spending a lot of my weekends in the 70s in Western Pennsylvania. So at the time that the Steelers were kind of the thing, um, especially in Western Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, being on a farm where we didn't really have a TV to watch the games, it was, you listen to the radio and there were no Browns games on the radio. There was, um, you know, basically Myron Cope calling uh, Pittsburgh Steelers game. So I uh, grew up listening to the Steelers. I was a big Pittsburgh Pirates fan. They were also great in the uh, 70s. And uh, so, you know, and but I ended up getting a job with the Browns. And when I got a job with the Browns and I started to really dive into the history of the team and fell in love with the history of the team even more than I ever had in the past. And um, uh, like I said, by the time I left there, I, I would consider myself you know, a diehard die Browns fan. Like I, I root for the team on a regular basis. Um, I, I complain about sometimes the way the teams run. And I think people confuse that for me, not liking the team. I just feel like as a fan, you know, our owners and ownership of all of our teams uh, owe us, a, you know, a decent product to root for. And I think um, for a large amount of the time I was with the Browns, we were not providing that uh, said product. So uh, with that, I left in 2015. Went to Baldwin Wallace, uh, or you know, came to Baldwin Wallace and um, started teaching fall 2016, and I've been here ever since. And um, like I said, I've done a lot of cool things, met a lot of cool people. But where I'm at right now in my life is probably the most comfortable I've been and the most fulfilled I've been. Um, the ability to be able to come every day and teach and, and to um, you know hopefully 
change and energize some young lives and minds is, is a rewarding thing for me. I, I mean, I definitely, I enjoy what I do. I mean, there's never a day where, um, you know, I'm like, man, I, I should have never taken this job. I mean, the hardest part of my job is that it takes me three minutes to get here. <laughs> I mean, cause I live on campus, but uh, that's the hardest part of my job. Once I get here and uh, I can, I can, I could talk all day, teach all day and I would be okay with that. Uh, I mean, I enjoy it that much. So. All right, real quick before we get into the uh, questions, if there are any listeners out there and are interested in becoming a sport, ma- sport management major, how can they reach out to you or any other professor at BW? You know, the, the biggest thing for me is just email. Uh, just email me and I'll, I'll email you back. If you go to um, bw.edu, you can, um, you can kind of search programs available, look up that sport management program. We are in the School of Business. And, um, you know, so all the requirements are there. Um, All of the professors in our program are listed at the bottom and our emails are available. But to save you time, it's, uh, you know, mine is real simple. It is just T-D-I-C-K, so T-Dick at B-W Shoot me an email. I'm up pretty much close to maybe 22 hours a day. I mean, I feel like I don't, I don't sleep. I, I, I don't, I feel like when you're sleeping, you're wasting time. I mean, this time you could be doing something productive. So I try to avoid sleep as much as possible. Um, my theory has always been at some point in my life, they're going to lay me in a box and I'll be able to lay down for a long, long time. So I don't want to waste that time now. So now into the questions, you've kind of already to some degree answered the first part of this question. Uh, why did you choose the Browns specifically kind of like over the rest of the sports teams in Ohio? And how did you hear about the position? So for me, it's a funny story. I, I, I didn't really pick the Browns. I think the Browns picked me. It kind of feels like that, like being a student here at BW, you know, I lived in North hall, which was right across the street from the actual Browns. The Browns used to practice when I was a freshman right across the street from my dorm room. So I, everybody would come into my dorm room because my windows faced out towards um, uh, Beach Street in the practice facility. And we would watch the Browns practice every day from, from my, um, my dorm room. And um, kind of, I'll, I'll go back a, a hot minute to kind of get to how I got on campus. Um, in high school, I was recruited by the University of Toledo. And, and originally I was slated to play for uh, University of Toledo. Um, I, I would visit, I would play my football games on Friday night. And then every Saturday um, I would go and um, uh, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Dan Simrel, who was the coach and coach Simrel would invite me and my dad out. We'd come and watch the games and we'd hang out in the locker room after the whole nine yards. So, um, so I pretty much just, I didn't look at any other schools. I had been getting calls from coach Packard at BW told him, you know, I was most likely going to Toledo. Um, and then, I played out my senior year football season. Uh, Toledo finished their season. They did not do well. Um, probably two, three weeks after the season was over, they fired Dan Simrel. They hired a guy by the name of Nick Saban to uh, coach the team. So Nick Saban takes over the team, and I stopped getting calls. Like, I'm not getting calls from it because he brought in his own assistant coaches, and they had a list of people they wanted to recruit and bring in and, and do all those things. So I, I – you know, I basically stopped getting communications from University of Toledo. So it was actually just a twist of fate. Bob Packard, the head coach here at BW, called me to congratulate me for getting into Toledo 
and in playing for Toledo. And I said, coach, I just, I don't know if you've heard something other, you know, different than what I'm hearing, but I'm not hearing anything from anybody at Toledo. And he said, well, you know, if you don't mind, would you mind coming back on campus and, and just visiting with us and taking a look at what we have to offer? And, um, you know, I had, I had been on campus, like hit or miss because as a kid, I, I played soccer at Finney stadium. Um, so I was familiar with the campus, but I didn't really do a formal campus campus visit. Long story short, Got on campus, met with a senior uh, by the name of Gus Patuhas. He gave me, um, or it was a junior going into a senior, Gus Patuhas. He gave me a tour of campus, talked to coach, talked to a couple of teachers in the history department because I wanted to be an elementary education major and teach history. Um, and I, when we left, I told my dad, I said, I think I'm going to BW. No matter what happens with Toledo, I think I'm going to BW. And that's how I ended up here. You know, it was really just, Coach Packard, um, you know, reaching out and to, I mean, think about it. He's reaching out to congratulate me for getting into another program. And uh, because he did that, I ended up on this campus and um, I end up in North Hall. I, I actually had put sprinkler systems and decks on houses when I was in high school. And that's how I was paying for college. So one day I'm walking to class past the practice facility and the equipment guys are, you know, that they're, there's water shooting out of the ground and they're trying to figure out how to make it stop. So I basically told them through the fence, I was like, Hey, there should be a valve box here. You just turn the valve and this, the sprinkler head, you'll stop sending water to it. It's broken and then you'll be fine. So they're fiddling around the can find it. And finally, the one guy's like, why don't you just get the hell over here and do this for us? And I was like, well, all right. So I came around, turned it off. They asked how I knew how to do it. I told them my big boring story about, uh, you know, I install sprinkler systems. And they said, hey, well, they're building a new facility down the street. And I know we're going to have irrigation there. You should apply for a job there. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. I didn't really appreciate the way they had talked to me about coming around to the fence. So I did, didn't think any of it. A week later, I'm walking to class again. Same guys are there setting up for camp. They said, hey, did you apply for that job? Like, Absolutely not. Um, and they said, well, go down there. So I, I walked down with a friend. We walked down there. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Vince Paterosi. He was running the grounds crew at that time. And uh, so I introduced myself, told him the equipment guys had sent me down. And he said, well, we already got an irrigation guy. So what I'm looking for is because they were constructing the field. He said, I need somebody that can operate heavy equipment. We've got a skid steer up front, which I don't know if you're familiar with a skid steer. You kind of sit in a little tiny thing with a bucket and they call it a skid steer because you basically steer by, you know, skidding around on four tires. But I, I was like, yeah, no, I, I, we've, I grew up on a farm in PA. I know how to run that. I'm fine. And he's like, awesome. He said, well, there's a bunch of gravel up front. He said, take your buddy and take one of the gators. And if you can move the pile of gravel that's up front, well, you know, I'll go ahead and hire you on. And I'm thinking, which to me in hindsight is crazy. Like he's essentially, I'm walking in off the street. He's putting me in a piece of power equipment and just saying, hey, if you could do this, we'll hire you. So as we're walking up to the front of the facility, this is all the way at the back of the facility. We're walking past all the practice fields up to the front. My buddy's like, man, that's such an awesome deal. Like, we're so lucky. And I said, why is that? He's like, well, what are the chances of you know how to run that skid steer and then us getting hired? I was like, dude, I've never run a skid steer before in my life. And he's like, what are you talking about? He said, you told the guy you know how you knew how to run a skid steer. I said, listen, he's coming up here in an hour. He's given us an hour to figure this out. I said, think about it. We came here, got no job whatsoever. If I can figure out how to run a skid steer in one hour, we've got a job working for an NFL team. So I, I, let's try to figure this out. So we get up front. I kid you not, the first 20 minutes of that hour, 
I couldn't get the thing to start because I, I didn't realize you had to have your seatbelt on. That's how how much I didn't know about this machine. I get the seatbelt on, get the thing started. I'm jerking all over the place. But eventually we got it figured out, got all the gravel moved, and I was hired. The next day I was working for the team. And, um, you know, so it was really more than anything being the right place at the right time. If I had gone to Toledo, probably wouldn't have gone into sport management, probably would have just stuck with education. Um, you, you know, and, and really the funny thing is, probably two, three years down the road, we used to play football after practice was over for the Browns, the equipment guys, the trainers, everything we'd go out on the field. And the one day we're playing football and I'm not going to lie to you and say I was an incredible football player. It's very average at, at best, but I happened to be, you know, having a pretty good day. Let's just say that I was making a couple great catches. And the funny thing is coach Belichick and coach Saban were actually watching us play and as i came off the field coach saban's like man where do you where do you play football at and i said well i'm i'm at bw up the street he's like you ever think of going to a bigger program i mean you got pretty good size you know this and that and i said well, funny thing you should mention that like i was actually supposed to go to toledo uh because we had a coach dan simmerl there but he got fired and i said the new guy that they hired wasn't interested in me and uh he understood what i was talking about laughed a little bit and um you know it's just funny though how our pass ended up crossing and then you know, just kind of to skip ahead a little bit. Last year, um, as a professor, I took students down to New Orleans for the national championship game. We actually stopped in Tuscaloosa on our way down and and met with um, uh, Coach Saban's staff. And uh, it was um, a pretty cool experience to kind of come full circle and to get our BW students into Coach Saban's office. They got to hang out, put all his rings on and take pictures. And it was a pretty awesome deal. But yeah, that's how I... I I didn't really so much pick the Browns. It just ended up being right place, right time. And it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, I tell my students all the time, like that's, that's a perfect example of just being ready to work and willing to work anywhere. And sometimes that's, that's how it works. I mean, I have a ton of students who graduated last year that keep calling me, emailing me, uh, messaging me, Hey, I've applied for 20 jobs, 30 jobs, 40 jobs. Uh, nobody's calling me back. I, I don't feel like I, it, you just got to keep moving ahead and eventually something will come up. And sometimes it ends up being something like that where I wasn't, I never was planning on working for the Cleveland Browns. I mean, I, I legit was planning on coming here, becoming an elementary education teacher and teaching kindergarten for the rest of my life. I mean, so, but when that moment happened, I had to take the job and, and, and it ended up turning into a, a 21 year career. And certainly that career helped, you know, you know, push me into what I'm doing right now. Um, all those things are kind of dominoes that kind of fell because I, I don't want to say because I lied. I don't want kids out there to say, well, you know, this guy's telling us this lie and you'll get a job. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that, but, but just having enough confidence in yourself to say, Hey, you know what? I'm willing to try this. We'll see what happens. If I didn't, if I didn't learn how to use that skid steer and we left, I'm leaving with what a job I never had anyhow. So, you know, why not, why not try it and see what happens? So that's kind of how I, I chose the, chose the Browns. <laughs> it's incredible how things just kind of, kind of happen, you know, it almost kind of seems like it was almost destiny. It, you know, you happened to just be passing. Well, you know, there was a couple of times that in, during my career, I had to pinch myself. I know that the guy, a couple of guys I went to high school with and one of the guys in particular, one of my best friends, Dennis Kepik, you, you know, Dennis, um, you know, we kind of came up because once I got hired as a groundskeeper, then the, that next summer I hired in a bunch of my friends and, um, or got a bunch of my friends jobs there. And, um, it, it, you know, it was about 20 years later 
um, we were in Phoenix. So we, we were in Phoenix for Super Bowl. I'm trying to think which one that would have been. That was the one would have been, it was Super Bowl uh, 42. It was the year that the, uh, the Patriots went in undefeated. You know, so we're there for Super Bowl 42. And on the Saturday before the game, Jim Brown had a big party. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there and I brought Dennis with me. And I was like, man, this is crazy. Like, think about it. Like 20 years ago, we're working for six bucks an hour cutting grass at the Browns facility. And now here we are, like a guest of Jim Brown sitting right up by the stage. Um, you know, his wife for that dinner, like got up and introduced me. And, 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 and like my buddy's looking at me, almost laughing. He's like, this is crazy, man. Like, how the hell does Jim Brown even know who the hell you are, let alone, you, you know, we're sitting at this benefit with him, all these people paying, you know, 10 grand a table or whatever. And, we're there. and I said, well, I, I think it's just a testament to just, um, you know, seizing opportunities when they come up and then just work hard, keep your nose clean. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is just the work and hard. I think that's the one thing that I had to give advice to anybody as far as how to succeed in this business, just work hard. Work hard because there's a lot of people in the business that aren't willing to work hard. They're not, they, they want to do, they want to be able to say, Hey, I work for said team, said league, whatever. But when it comes down to, you know, brass tacks and just like actually diving in and doing the work, there's, there's a lot of people that just aren't into that. And, and you got to be into it. I mean, you got to be willing to grind. Uh, I mean, when I first got in, we were working 80 to 100 hours a week. And when I tell people that, a lot of people don't believe it. They're like, how could you work 80 to 100 hours a week? We worked 80 to 100 hours a week. And until you've ever worked an 80-hour week or 100-hour week, like you have no idea what tired even is. I, I mean, I laugh when I hear students, oh, man, I'm so tired. It's like, are you kidding me? You have like three classes, three 15-minute classes a day. I, I mean, if you're tired now, wait till you get in industry, dude, because an 80-hour week, as bad as they were, I used to love, I used to love them. You know, people thought I was sick, which I may have been, I've never been tested. So I, I don't know, I don't know what we got going on up here, but I was like my first 100 hour week, I went home and I was so happy because when I sat in my chair, um, you know, it was a Saturday night. I, I, I said to myself, as I went through and I saw calculated the hours, I'm like, there is no way that I possibly could have given any more than I gave this week. Like I got the most out of me that, that is, is available. And to be able to say that you've done that, I think that's huge. And, and after that, once I knew I could work a hundred hour week, that's when, uh, you know, any other week that came up after that was just like, man, we've done a hundred hour week. Any of these other ones under a hundred hours can't be that bad. And um, I think that's an important thing too. work hard and know your limits, stretch your limits. And the only way you're going to know your limit is if you push yourself, you got to push yourself or you're never going to know what that limit is. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. So moving on to the next question. So you were with the Browns for, you said 21 years. Uh, what other positions did you have with the team during that time? So I started out as a groundskeeper. By the time I graduated, I was assistant head groundskeeper, which at the time, um, it was a, it was an odd situation because I was headquartered in Berea, which was a non-union facility. But then when I went to the stadium, I was the assistant there and it was a union facility. So that for, and, and we're talking, I was 21, 22 years old at the time. So imagine a 21, 22 year old kid, you know, going down to a union shop and, you know, these guys are 30, 40 years old. They've been there. You know, some of the guys are even older than that. And all of a sudden I go down and I'm in charge of them. That was a, it was a real interesting dynamic. But once again, that was one of those things where I, I feel like um, the key to my success there was 
I was working right alongside those guys. I, I never, I never was above anybody else's work. Um, you know, I was always working right along. So nobody could ever say, Hey, you know, this kid's just barking orders and then leaving. It's like, no, I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and work with you too. And I think for a lot of them, uh, that I, I won them over rather quickly. And, and I think, you know, working alongside them and treating them as equals and, and not that, that bode well for me. So then I, I did that until the team left. Um, when the team left, I went back to school and when they returned, I resumed my position as uh, an assistant groundskeeper and then kind of worked my way to the point where there was really nowhere else to go. I mean, the current assistant that's there now, um, he was he was there in 99. So I knew he wasn't going anywhere. So I just started to feel around, you know, the organization, what would be a good fit for me? I didn't want to go into marketing sales. I mean, I feel like I would have done all right there, but I wasn't big on a suit. Like I, I'm you know, when I wore ground screw, I literally wore a t-shirt mesh shorts for 13 years, like the greatest gig ever, man. I mean, you're working with a pro team and you don't have to, you know, you're wearing t-shirts and, and sweatpants. Um, so I, I started looking at departments and then I found the alumni department and the gentleman who ran that department, his name is Dino Lucarelli. Dino is a legend in Cleveland. I mean, he worked for the, he worked for the Barons was his first job in sports, ended up working for the Indians for almost 20 years. And then, um, and then work for the Browns. And um, it, I mean, he is definitely uh, a who's who in Cleveland. I mean, if you know Dino, um, he's just an amazing guy. And um, so I figured, man, this of all the places I could work, this will be the place. Uh, but I wasn't sure if I was qualified. And the funny thing is, I, I heard that there was an opening. I literally, I always had my resume ready like five minutes after this particular person who worked before me got let go. I had my um, application in and my boss at the time, the person that I, our department reported to, his name is Lou Merletti. And uh, Lou is a former director of secret service. I mean, he is no pun intended, a straight shooter. <laughs> he, he's a, uh, just a great guy. But I, I called him and I said, Hey, really interested in this position. And, um, it was funny because this is a, that was another point in my working career where it kind of clicked for me because he's like, absolutely, absolutely. We'll hire you. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. And then um, he said, let me talk to some other people in the building. So we talked to some other people in the building and they're like, absolutely. And I'm thinking, man, these guys are, that they're talking about me as if like I work with them and I've, and uh, so when we get into the kind of the interview process, um, a bunch of the guys that were in the front office start talking to me and they're like, Hey, and I never, I never thought of this when it was happening, but all of their offices were in the back of the facility and they all looked over the field and they're like, every day we see you out there busting your rear end. And I mean, you're never, you never seem to go anything other than 120 miles an hour. And you're always doing a great job and you're picking stuff up and you're always presentable and we see we at lunch. It's great. You talk to people and all departments treat everybody the same. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where I, I mean, I don't want to say it wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional to the point where I was doing it to get a job. It was intentional because I truly believe in treating people well. Um, but I never really realized anybody was watching that. And that's one of the things when I talked to my intro class, um, you know, I tell them, like, you never know who's watching you. You never have any idea whose eyes are on you. And, and I didn't, realize that until I got in this situation where I needed people to, to stand up for me. And, 
you know, when it's the VP of the team and it's the president of the team and people that are, you know, Hey, that job was mine. If I wanted that job, that job was mine. And so that's how I ended up getting that position. So ended up with my career, uh, as a manager of alumni relations for, you know, the last, I believe five or six years I was there. And, um, to me, other than the current job that I'm doing right now, probably the, the most enjoyable job I ever had in my life. I, I mean, I, I literally just, I, I was handed over 1800 alumni, you know, current alumni that were living and, um, just set up events with them, communicated with them, kind of, you know, uh, put out newsletters. And, and it was just, it was just such a great, you know, especially the guys that played in the forties and the fifties. Um, because th those are people, when we talk about truly playing for the love of the game, I, I mean, they were getting paid five, $6,000 yearly salary to play professional football. I mean, it's, uh, it's absurd. And, uh, and of course they come from that generation where a lot of them gave up, gave up some of the best years of their career to fight world war two. And, uh, so I, I mean, I have nothing, nothing but mad respect for that group, but yeah, that, that, so that, that's kind of, I, I guess I, I listed all my positions. So I started grounds crew, uh, worked there. You know, a lot of what I did was, um, you know, not just grounds, but facility stuff. And then not just alumni, a lot of event uh, planning, worked alongside uh, community relations, uh, Browns backers, uh, you, you know, all those groups. So it's a, a great, great job to have. And to kind of go off the, your, like the 1800 alumni real quick, who are some of your favorite players or coaching staff that you got to meet and interact with while working for the Browns? I, you know, it's, I hate to pay, I hate to say favorite because it's kind of like your kids like you're not supposed to say which one's your favorite or you're not I guess you're not supposed to even have a favorite you're supposed to love them all but um you, you know the reality is got to work with a ton of guys obviously you know to be able to work with Jim Brown I mean Jim's got to be at the top of the list just because of who he is and what he means to the game of football um and just what he means to the society in general um, but, you know, some of the guys that I would say were my favorite favorites probably are guys you wouldn't know. I mean, there's a guy named Jamie Caleb. Uh, Jamie was a running back who actually backed up Jim Brown. And um, I just I absolutely love Jamie. Like he played football at Grambling, was drafted by the Browns, came up here. And, and the crazy thing is he was actually uh, he played here for a year. His roommate at Grambling ended up getting drafted by the team the next year, took his spot. And he went up to play for the Minnesota Vikings for a year or two. And then he came back here and backed up Jim in 65 in his last season. But the thing I love about Jamie is after he retired, he went to the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, worked as an as a educator for years, retired as an educator. And I love Jamie because anytime we had an event with kids, they would ask me for, you know, and they were asking me for an alum. I would say, hey, Jamie Caleb's your guy. And people would be like, Who's Jamie Caleb? Like, we don't know who Jamie Caleb. They always wanted a name they could recognize. And I said, nothing against the guys around here locally that you recognize their names. I said, but sometimes just because you recognize a guy's name doesn't mean he works well with kids. I said, but trust me, let me send Jamie and then you can thank me after the event's over. And without fail, anytime we had an event, people would call me back like, that guy is amazing. And he was, he was an amazing guy. So like I said, Jamie Caleb's a favorite guy. I love, like I said, I love the World War II guys. Um, Dante Lavelli, um, he, he told me, I just numerous, I love spending time with him, just telling stories. He had a furniture shop in Rocky river and, uh, we would go there and just hang out with him in the back room and just listen to him tell football stories. Um, he was great. Obviously, 
um, you, you know, guys like Luke Rozo, uh, Otto Graham. I mean, they were just, uh, just amazing people. Uh, the Hall of Famer, Gene Hickerson. Gene was a guy that I, I really, uh, really grew to love. And then, you know, one of my all-time, all-time favorite people of all time was Bill Willis. Um, and Bill Willis was a gentleman who, uh, with Marion Motley, actually broke the color barrier permanently in professional football in 1946, a year before Jackie Robinson did it in baseball, which I'm certainly not here taking anything away from Jackie Robinson, amazing player. But Jackie Robinson, let, let's be real, Jackie Robinson was not playing in a contact sport. So when you think about the, the wild shenanigans that went on with Jackie Robinson, think about being Bill Willis and Marion Motley, where you're at the bottom of a pile with people who hate you because of the color of your skin and the stuff that went on at the bottom of those piles. I, I it's just, to me, it, I, I just think I, and like I said, not taken away from Jackie Robinson, just saying like Bill Willis, Mary Motley, the stuff that they had to endure. It's just, to me, it's unimaginable. And uh, they're just they're two amazing people. I mean, they never retaliated, never got bitter. Um, you know, both Willis and Motley are in the hall of fame. Um, you know, Bill Willis actually quit after an eight year career. Imagine this. And this kind of tells you how much these guys were making. He quit after an eight year career to become the, the first recreation director for the city of Cleveland. So he quit his job in professional football to become a rec director for the city of Cleveland, did it for many years. And then he ended up moving back down to Columbus. Um, and, and he uh, worked with juvenile youth down there. And it's just, uh, just an amazing human being. Like I said, uh, forget the football player part of it because um he was a phenomenal football player but uh just the, him as a human being with that I, he was just a great guy to be around i was i was i don't know, like i said it, it, when they retired his number at ohio state one of my favorite moments as far as you know things i was able to do because i worked for the browns they retired his number at uh, ohio state i got to go down there to columbus and represent the browns we were on the field at halftime when they and i was just like wow i mean it, it was that was just a super cool moment for like I said, one of the greatest human beings I've, I've ever I've ever known. So um, I would say Bill Willis definitely he's definitely top of my list. And, and that doesn't mean all the other. I mean, it's just if I got to rank him, Bill's my guy, man. I mean, he's just uh, an amazing individual. So well, I can't imagine you know some of the stories that they must have. You know that you know they've been able to tell over the years. It must have been incredible. You know, oh, getting yeah. to get to know some of these guys. Yeah, they were the greatest part of my job, man. I mean, imagine getting paid to hear hear these stories from. I mean, yeah, there were times where I felt like I was stealing. I mean, just because it's like, man, people would do this for free, and um, it, it, you know, it. Uh, I de definitely consider myself to be blessed in that regard, for sure. Absolutely, but can't really talk about the Browns without mentioning the move. Um, yeah. So I was born in '95, so that was the year that the Browns moved. What do you think prompted the move to Baltimore? Like, I know a little bit of the history of it, but I was not too much. You know, a lot of it, and it's funny because I'm a, I'm I'm not going to sound bitter because I'm not bitter about it. Because um, I I've, I've my ship has sailed from that. I mean, I it, it it's funny. I get attacked all the time by Browns fans because I will defend Art Modell to some extent for for the move. And Browns fans jump all over me. Like, it especially makes me laugh when it's somebody I don't even know. They're like, you're a friggin' idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, no, I was literally working for the team. And when they moved, 
they literally took my job with them. So if anybody should be bitter, I mean, yeah, they took your team and you didn't get to wear a hat for two years and root for them. They took my job, like <laughs> my actual job left. So if anybody should be bitter, it should be me. And I'm just not, I just can't, I can't get myself to, to become bitter about it because I, I don't think people fully understand the magnitude of the problem. I mean, to me, you can say whatever you want about Art Modell. People say he's an idiot, didn't know what he was doing, blah, blah, blah. That isn't the guy I saw. I mean, I saw a guy who was very kind to me, very good to me when I worked there. I saw a guy who was very kind to local people, gave a ton of money to local charities. And, and I think if I were to fault him for anything, I just think he trusted his friends too much. And if that's the worst thing about somebody is that you trusted your friends too much, then I, I don't, just don't know how you could say the guy He's not a bad guy. I mean, I question the people that were around him. Um, and, and I think that's probably what happened. He had a finance guy that, um, you know, knew things were going south, didn't say anything to him until it was too late. And then by the time they, they fessed up and told him where they, we were at, he had one, he had, well, he actually had two choices. He had two choices. Do what he did, move to Baltimore or give the team up. And, and why should he have to sell his family business? Once again, you know, he comes from an era where, you know, the Modell family owned the Cleveland Browns, just like the Rooney family owned the Pittsburgh State. They didn't own anything else. You know, the Rooney family didn't make their money in steel, and then, you know, they took that money and, and bought it. No, they bought the Steelers and made their money. So to say, well, he should have just sold the team, why? I mean, he owned it. I mean, it's his business. He could go anywhere he wants. And it's funny when I hear players say this too. I have players that are bashing Art Modell. I'm like, I don't get it, dude. Like if somebody was willing to pay you twice as much to be a wide receiver in Baltimore, you would have left for Baltimore. So it's okay for you to leave as a player for more money or a coach for more money. But if the owner gets an offer to where, hey, I can get out of debt, I can, you know, and like I said, the way he did it, probably not the greatest way to do it. But he was painted into a corner. I mean, the reality is, if, if you go back and you look at what he asked for, what he wanted, if they had just given him what he wanted, this this town would have been, you know, changed forever. Like his biggest beef was he didn't want a stadium on the lake. He wanted the new stadium originally to be where the Tower City Amphitheater is at, you know, down by Tower City. Yeah. You think about it, if, if that stadium had been down by Tower City, just think how how much that area would have bustled, especially after you put the gateway project in there, uh, progressive field uh, mm -hmm. arena, that, that would have been just absolutely amazing. Cause his big thing is why do we have a stadium on the lake? Like this is premium property. There should be yeah. resorts here, uh, you know, boat slips, restaurants, uh, you know, like a dock, like, or, you know, like Chicago has, you know, you've got that beautiful mm -hmm. down there. And, and what ended up happening is uh, the calves, and the Indians got taken care of, and he didn't. I mean, think yeah. about it. The stadium was hemorrhaging money. I mean, the, the city was losing money off Municipal Stadium. He agreed to take that stadium over, kind of made it profitable. And the moment he made it profitable, and he, you know, Cleveland wasn't losing money on it anymore, they took the Indians out as a tenant. And then the parking lot that used to be right up against the stadium, they said, we're going to build a rock hall there, a science center there. Now you don't have any parking. I mean, it's like, come on. I mean, they did everything yeah. to force him out of town. And then when he left out of town, um, you know, Mike White and, and, and all the clowns that were running our town, I mean, they got into this agreement with the NFL to get the team back. We should have never come back in 99. We should have never come back in 99. 
They should have waited to come back in 2000. The stadium should have never been built where it was built. That wasn't thought out. The stadium's garbage. I mean, even though we've we've uh, revamped it, whatever, it's not what it could have been. I mean, we should have put in for a dome stadium. I know a lot of people were like, well, we didn't have the money for it. But the thing is, we had leverage at that point. I mean, the, the league was embarrassed by the fact that they they didn't control the situation well enough. And I think if we had pressured the league they would have floated us alone to put a roof on that stadium. And if we had a roof on the stadium, then we could have got a Super Bowl. We could have got mm-hmm. Final fours, all those things. And, and, you know, that, like I said, I don't blame Art Modell for any of that stuff. You can maybe blame Art Modell for the team leaving, but you certainly can't blame Art Modell for the last 20 years worth of debacles. This stadium is garbage. The team's been garbage. Um, you know, people say ownerships. I, I'm, you know, I, the ownership is what it is. But that, that stadium should not be where it's at. And, and this franchise should have never come back in 99. We should have come back in 2000. I mean, when you think about it, we came back in 99, it was a disaster. By the time we knew who our owner was, you already had the stadium built. Um, they built it without hot. People don't know this. There was no hot water in the stadium. So think about that. No hot water in the bathrooms. No escalators. It wasn't until Al Lerner found out he bought the team and then he looked at the stadium that he got with this purchase. He's like, Whoa, no hot water in the bathrooms. What are you talking about? So immediately he paid for that. He paid for the escalators, did all the upgrades on it, but that all that stuff should have never happened. I mean, who the yeah. hell is a stadium in Northeast Ohio with no hot water in the bathroom? Are you out of your mind? I mean, no yeah. escalator, you know, come on. It's crazy. So yeah, uh, to me, I don't blame Art Modell and I take a lot of flack for it. And guys like Tony Grossi, not to get personal, but a guy like Tony Grossi who has spent the last 20 years going to the Hall of Fame to keep Art Modell out of the Hall of Fame, I can't stand the guy. I can't stand him. Because now I I hear people complaining that Clay Matthews isn't in the Hall of Fame. Well, listen, maybe if our one voter from Cleveland, Tony Grossi, hadn't spent 20 years keeping Art Modell out and had instead done something positive like trying to get Clay Matthews in – Clay would have already been in by now. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I think Art belongs in the Hall of Fame, but take my opinion away. The all Tony Grossi only had to do his presentation once on Art not getting in. And everybody gets it. Like all the other voters get it. Like you don't have to remind them every year. Not why not. But with, with Clay Matthews, I felt like I feel like he's very he, he's responsible for Clay not being in already. Let me just say that. I don't know. That's just my belief. That's my belief. So talking about the move, how was it brought to your attention? And I think you probably kind of covered this already, but what were the reasons that they gave? So for me, it was, it was a weird deal. Like, like I said, I started out elementary education major. The team talked me into switching to sport management right before the start of my senior year. So because of that, um, I ended up having to stay for uh, classes, not for a whole year. Uh, I, there was two classes that I needed that were only offered in the spring. So I worked after my regular senior year. I worked that fall with the team, took my two classes, spring of 95, and then graduated in 95. Worked for the team for about three months. And they told me, hey, the minute you graduate, we're going to put you on, because I was already full-time salary. Said, we're going to get you benefits. We're going to, you know, health insurance, life insurance, all this stuff. I'm like, awesome. You know, these are all the things that you're looking for as a college graduate. So like one or two months go by, three months go by. I'm not having any of these discussions regarding the health care and all that stuff. 
And my dad's getting nervous because I'm getting ready to get bounced off of his insurance. So I went in one day, I said, hey, when am I going to get this stuff? And um, basically they said, well, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it, just hold, you know, whatever. And I started looking around and it was all the people that had recently been hired weren't getting this stuff. And um, finally, I just came in and, and to be honest with you, I, I, I quit before they even announced the move. So I said, if I'm not getting this insurance, I'm out of here. You know, I, I got to go. I can't, you promised me this. And now you're saying I'm not getting it. So I left and it was after I left that I found out the reason they weren't putting me on the health insurance, life insurance, all those things is once they let everyone go and they were moving, there was going to be an agreement that anyone who had health insurance, life insurance, they were going to get it for 18 months after. So they were just trying to save some money by not putting me on that health, health insurance, life insurance. So that's how I, I kind of found out about it. And then when they left, um, I was asked if, if I wanted to come to Baltimore and work because they and I just, at that point, I had returned back to school that fall. Like I, so imagine that I graduate in the spring, immediately returned back in the fall. I took a job working night custodial here at BW and, uh, which is a funny deal because I, I wanted to go back and finish my, uh, my education degree, but I didn't have money to do it. So I had worked night custodial as a student here and there. And I worked with a bunch of guys who were full-time and they were going to college and I found out that if you work full time for the school, that you can get your tuition 92%, you know, paid for. So I was like, man, I think I'm just going to take a job as a night custodian. And then it gives me the whole day to work. So I immediately went into this night custodial work, which the, the, iron, the irony of that whole situation is the, the room I'm sitting in right now, uh, the, in the building I'm sitting in right now, Cam Hall, was one of the buildings I used to clean. Um, in order to get my free tuition, to get my teaching degree, and then eventually to get my master's degree. And it's because I got the master's degree that I'm here, I'm able to teach. And I just think that once again, we, we you know, not to, not to keep pushing it towards, you know, like a, a life lessons here, but that to me is another example of just, Hey man, if you, if I needed that degree and I couldn't afford it, I, you know, the best way to do it is to figure out a way for somebody else to pay for it. I figured out a way for somebody else to pay for it. I had people constantly busting my chops about work a third, you know, shift as a custodian, but it's like, listen, man, I'm getting paid 12 bucks an hour. I have health insurance and I get my school 92% paid for. And all I'm doing is vacuuming four floors and cleaning chalkboards. Like this ain't a bad gig, right? I mean, you're getting free school on top of it. So that's, that's what happened when the team moved. Um, you know, I went back, got my teaching degree and um, didn't take the job with Baltimore because I say it all the time. I got two uncles that are huge um, Browns fans. If I had taken the job and gone to Baltimore, they probably would have never talked to me ever again. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest about that. Um, they may have eventually, but I, I think probably initially they would have never talked to me. But that, that's how I found out about it. And when I found out they were leaving, it was devastating to me because I had so many friends that were there. And I was actually working part-time. This is a fun fact here. I was working part-time at a gas station on Bagley Road. And so that the day of the last game, as people were coming down 71 with like rows and rows of seats that they had stolen from the stadium. And there was a guy that had a urinal from the state. I mean, it was just crazy shit, like strapped to cars coming down the road. I was working at that shell station with a guy by the name of Dave Jenkins, who was actually the uh, – currently the CFO of the Browns. So the two of us are, you know, kind of, you know, working at a gas station. And then eventually when the team came back, um, you know, we, we, we both 
ended up working for the Browns. Dave's still there. But uh, I, like I said, that to me was, I wasn't there for that last game. I'm almost glad I wasn't because when I watched the film of it, I mean, it was just so sad to me because beyond the fact that I worked for the Browns, I mean, for me as a kid, uh, that's the place where I saw my first baseball game. I, I, you know, I saw my first football game. My grandfather used to take me all the time. And, um, you know, I'll never forget the first day that I worked. Like I actually got to work in the stadium and I actually got to walk down on the field. I mean, that was a big deal for me because, um, that's all I could think of. It's like my grandfather was, you know, he's going to shit when he finds out that I like, I get to, you know, we just come here all the time. I mean, and, and now I'm cutting the grass here. Like he's going to freak out. And, um, I was blessed that my grandfather was able to come and see me work a couple games and see me on the sideline. And, uh, that, that was a big deal to me, but, um, yeah, to, to me, I wasn't there. I wasn't there for that last game. And I don't know if I could have handled it. I mean, to me, um, just the emotions of that, it, it just, I don't know. I talked to guys that were there and they said just everybody was crying the whole play. It, it didn't matter who you were, you were crying. And it, uh, I'm not big on that. I cry too easy as it is. I don't need to be in a stadium full of 80,000 people crying uh, to get me going. So, um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of my, my story there. And um, you know, you know, like I said, the Baltimore deal, you know, one of the things a lot of people overlook is the fact that, you know, art actually flew out to Baltimore in Mr. Lerner's jet. And um you know, that to me, that always kind of sat with me funny when when he ended up being the new owner. But it's just one of those things where, man, uh, you know, life is what it is. And, and like I said, I don't want to knock on any fans. I understand, you know, they call them fans for a reason. It's short for fanatics. I understand fans being upset with Art Modell. But, you know, when I see people like taking pictures, peeing on his grave and, you know, you know, just saying crazy stuff about him. That guy did more for the city of Cleveland than just about anybody in the last 56 years. And you can't, you can't judge, if you judge every man by their worst day, that's just not fair. It's just, you wouldn't want anybody to judge you by your worst day. And, and I think, um, you know, the thing that was tough for me is I had people that I worked with that I heard after the fact that art, you know, everybody thought art never came back to Cleveland. Art was coming back to Cleveland all the time. We had people that we worked with who I had cancer, who were going in for cancer treatments, were hospitalized, had all kinds of family problems, this and that. Art would fly in when he was doing well. Or and, and when I say he was doing well, it's not like he flew to Baltimore and became a billionaire. He flew to Baltimore and just barely got out of bankruptcy. Okay. But he would still come back with the little money that he had and he would pay you know, for people's hospital bills. And, and, and I, you know, I don't know. So to me, I, you'll never find me bashing that guy. He belongs in the hall of fame. People make mistakes and it's like, come on, man. When I look at, you can't tell me that every single person in the hall of fame is a saint. They're just not, there's not. Um, so I don't, I don't begrudge him for what he did. Kind of a long winded answer there. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Before you left, was there like any sense in the building? Like something was up, like, was there like a big atmosphere change in the building? I, I think just that, you know, I definitely knew something was up when we weren't getting the hospital. I mean, because it was up to that point, we were treated very fairly, very squarely. And that goes back to what I said about the, um, you know, me not blaming Art, but, but blaming the people around him. I don't, I'm not, I'm not 100% confident that, that Mr. Modell knew that we weren't being given insurance. We weren't being set up for this um, because they were leaving. Um but, but certainly once that announcement was made, you know, cause I still was on, you know, I lived right up the street. Um, I still talked to all the people that worked there. I mean, you talk about just 
the team was doing relatively well up until they announced they were leaving. And once that happened, um, man, it took the, the air completely out of the sails there. And um, it took a team that I thought and I still believe was on the rise and just completely leveled everything. Because I'll tell you what, that year before when we were in the playoffs and we ended up beating Bill Parcells in, in, in the Drew Bledsoe-led Patriots on our home field. Mm-hmm. And I was we were jumping around on the field. And I'm looking at my buddies. I'm like, man, I mean, this team, I mean, think about it. We're, we're doing this. We're knocking off Drew Bledsoe, who was a star in the league at that time. Bill Parcells, who certainly was a phenomenal coach, we beat him with the team. No offense to Vinny Testaverde, but, I mean, we had like a 40-year-old Vinny Testaverde going up against Drew Bledsoe, a rising star in the league, and and we're going head-to-head with Bill Parcells, who had won Super Bowls with the Giants. I mean, this team was going places. I I mean, our captain on defense was Pepper Johnson, who was a 40-year-old linebacker. I said, man, if we're doing this, think about it. Think about that team. Two years later, Pepper Johnson is replaced by, when they go to Baltimore, Ray Lewis. I mean, so that – imagine Bill Belichick coaching a defense. I mean, we saw what he did with the Giants when he had Lawrence mm-hmm. Taylor. Imagine what he would have done with Laura, with uh, Ray Lewis in that defense. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I mean, so – I don't know. And, 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 you know, getting Ogden, you know, Ogden was a guy that uh, they ended up getting to. And and I just think, man, um, what could have been. And it's funny when you talk with uh, Coach Bilicek, when you talk to Saban, the other guys that were in that building, I think everybody feels the same way. Like we were clearly headed in the right direction. And certainly you can't question the quality of the coaching staff. I mean, you had Bill Belichick and Nick Saban. I yeah. mean, to me, arguably the yeah. greatest college and pro coach in the history of the game in the same building. I mean, come on, you know, yeah. something good's bound to happen. I've always said that, you know, the Ravens team that won the Super Bowl in 2000, if that team didn't move, that most likely could have been the Browns being yeah. the Giants in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, um, you know, and I feel bad for Coach Belichick too, because I don't know if you know the backstory on that. So when the team left, Cleveland he was the head coach and um you know so for him he was a kid who grew up in Baltimore he got his first chance coaching in Baltimore his dad was a legend in coaching in Baltimore and um so he's like man this is this will be great be able to coach in front of my dad he's going to be able to come to all of our games and um it was shortly after they made the official move they ended up firing him um because Art was a little concerned with just the negative PR um because of the way Belichick was treated here in Cleveland by our media and uh, so they fired him, and they hired a guy named Ted Marchabroda to um, to be the head coach of the team. But I was like, man, that was an awful mistake, too. Um, yeah. I don't know. But once again, I think that was just the PR people getting in Art's ear saying, hey, um, you know, everybody hates him in Cleveland. They're probably going to hate him in Baltimore. And I, I don't know if that would have been the case. But, um, I mean, like I said, we certainly know what kind of coach Bill Belichick turned out to be. I mean, he, he you know, he managed to do all right. Um <laughs> So I, I just I but I, I can't help but wonder what could have been if that team had stayed here in Cleveland. How magical could that have been? And um, yeah. we'll never know. But um, so, what made you return to the organization when they came back? So it's going to be a funny story. So um, when I was with the team originally, and I, I got to get the year right. I want to say it was '94. Towards the end of the season, we were playing the Dallas Cowboys in Dallas. 
And the, the game, you, you guys won't remember it. You're too young, but you can look up the highlights. We end up beating the Cowboys. Last last play of the game, I believe, is Novacek catches the ball tight end, and he has an opportunity. It's kind of very similar to that last play of the uh, the Rams um, the Rams Titans Super Bowl, where you know the guy catches the ball on the three yard mm-hmm. line and tries to reach. Remember that? Well, the, the, we end up stopping Dallas. They don't score, and because they don't score, and they lose the game that year, the San Francisco 49ers get home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Okay. And at the, at that time, Dallas and the 49ers are going back and forth at who was winning the championship. The very next day we go into work. Okay. And we go up and we had a small lunchroom, but we go up in the lunchroom and they've got this dude. He's like in a fancy chef hat and they're, they're putting a brown paper on all the tables and and I was always interested in, in the lunch. Like lunch was one, you know, one of my priorities. You can probably tell it by looking at me. So uh, I get in there and I'm like, hey, what's going on for lunch? You know? And they said, this guy, Carmen Policy with the San Francisco 49ers, he flew his private chef in with crab legs and you know, to thank us for winning the game yesterday. He's got a, a whole airplane full of crab legs that we're getting to eat for lunch. And I was like, oh, all right. You know, so what, you know, for me, I'm, like I said, I'm a college kid. And now I'm finding out I'm getting unlimited crab legs for lunch. So we go ahead and have lunch. It was like one of the best lunches I ever had. Just amazing, right? So we, we flash forward to 1999. I get the call. Hey, you want to come work for the Browns? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I wasn't really paying attention because I had just signed a teaching contract in North Ridgeville. I was focusing on that. And I said, well, I don't know. Let me take a look at what's going on here. So I start reading through stuff and I see that Carmen Policy is part of the ownership group. And I'm like, Oof, I, I remember this guy. And um you know, the funny thing is like my mom, she was very adamant about me staying and teaching. She had a fear that she didn't want me to go take a job with the Browns because well, what if they move again? I'm like, mom, I don't think there's a chance the Browns going to move twice. I mean, who knows? It could have happened. But uh, the minute I said it was Carmen, I said, well, the owner's Carmen policy and the, the crab leg guy, she's like, oh yeah, well, go ahead and <laughs> take the job because clearly this guy knows how to treat people. And uh, so for me, it was a no brainer. When I looked at that, when I looked at the ownership group, I mean, like I said, Mr. Lerner, greatest, one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet, man. I mean, just an amazing Patriot, an amazing, uh, you know, just husband, business owner treats his employee, you know, he treated his employees, you know, uh, just amazingly. If you, if you ever know the story, the story, so out in, um, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to screw this up where he's at, where his headquarters out East, when he built the headquarters for Bank of America, the first thing he did was build a daycare center right in the middle of the property. And then he built all the other buildings around it. So any employee that worked for him, if they had kids, they could have them at this daycare center in Beach. It was in Beachwood. And, and then they could visit the kids throughout the day. I'm thinking, man, who does that? Like, what, what guy does that? But that's the kind of person he was. So, um, you know, when I talked to him the first time, you know, and, and thanked him for hiring me on. He said, hey, we simply went through and we hired the best of the best for every department. And I'm just going to let people do their jobs and let's see what happens. And like I said, when you think about it, the head of our security for the team was the, the director of the Secret Service the year before. I mean, you don't, you're not getting any more impressive than that. So, I mean, that's kind of the way he ran it. So it's like, who's not, who doesn't want to be involved in that organization? Because I'm not saying, 
I'm as great as Lou Merletti, but if, if I'm working for the same organization and the same organization's coming after me that came after him, I mean, I, I, I consider that a compliment and I have to, I have to seize the opportunity. Um, so that's, you know, Carmen and the crab legs and just the way Mr. Lerner treated yeah. his employees. Those are the two reasons I took my job back. And um, like I said, I, I never, you know, you could go back and regret it. Cause I have people that are, you know, friends of mine, like, man, if you would have stuck with teaching, you only have a couple of years and you'd be retired. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm still going to be able to teach. Um, I don't, I wouldn't have had 20 years of the, the stories and the journey. And, and that to me is, I don't know. I don't even know if I'd ever even enjoy being retired. I, I, I gotta be doing yeah. something anyhow. I mean, what am I going to do? Sit and garden all damn day. I mean, I, I, I don't know. So, but that's how I got back. Carmen and them crab legs, man. Whew. You kind of brought a culture a little bit with Lerner. And was there a difference between the culture before they left Baltimore and when they came back in like in, in the 20 years after they came back? I, I would say it wasn't so much because I, like I said, Mr. Modell treated us fairly. I mean, I, I, I felt like he did a good job with treating people fairly. The only difference between what Art Modell was able to provide and Al Lerner was able to provide was that Mr. Lerner had more money to spend. I mean, he, he came in worth $6 billion somewhere around there. Okay. And, and, and he treated people well, he spent money well to me, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, probably where I wasn't paid a ton of money, but when I look at the benefits I had, you know, the one thing I look back at, because people ask me all the time, man, why did you stay there as long as you did? The benefits were just amazing. I mean, for our health benefits, as long as I went to a building that had a Cleveland clinic on it, I didn't pay a penny for anything. And there was no co-pays for visits, none of that stuff. He took care of all that stuff for me. So as someone who had three kids and didn't have to pay a penny for any of those kids to be delivered, um, you know, folks in my family having surgeries and having like the, I mean, somebody in your house blows their knee out and the top knee surgeon in the country puts their knee back together and you don't get charged for it. I mean, it's a pretty good deal. Um, you know, so for me, it was just that, I mean, and, and then the culture for me, I, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to rip on the current group because different people have different priorities. I just feel like the current group was just too focused on the current team and, and not there wasn't enough focus or appreciation for the history of the team, which, you know, I get maybe my view of that was skewed because I was running the alumni department. So I got to be real careful here. I, I think, you know, maybe they just weren't, they weren't from here. So they weren't familiar with it. Um, so maybe that's why they didn't care as much about it, or maybe they didn't understand the people that they, you know, they had, because that was one of the first things I told Mr. Haslam when he bought the team, because I was running the alumni department. I said, just know that, you're not just, you didn't just purchase the 55 guys on the, on the current roster, the current, you've got every guy that ever put on that uniform. I mean, and, and their legacy is your property at this point. And, and it's something that you can leverage to, um, you know, keep fans, make fans, um, you know, kind of crow a little bit about the history of your organization. And um, I don't know if they were, like I said, and I'm not faulting them for that. I mean, everybody's got their own different, you know, thoughts and beliefs, but that's really ultimately what greased the skids for me to leave. When we talk about culture is just, um, I, I just didn't feel like where I was at anymore was, I don't want to say appreciate. I just think, 
I won't use the word appreciated because I don't think that's fair. I just think they, I had to done and developed as much as I possibly could. And there was really no other room for growth. We'll just leave it at that. So, so that's why I backed out. And um, I, I do feel like, you, you know, when we talk about culture in general, though, I, I, I feel like our fans deserve to be treated better than any other fan in the league. And I'm not just saying that because I grew up here. I, I truly mean that because when you look at the support that this organization has had, when you look at the Indians, I still say when people bash Cleveland fans, I was like, you got to be kidding me, man. There's no greater proof that our fans will support a good product like no other than that, uh, that sellout streak that the Indians had. Cause think about that one, man. Think about all those games that the Indians sold in a row consecutively. That includes opening days in April when it's snowing and raining and miserable. And you know, the getaway games at one in the afternoon, we still sold out that stadium and same thing for the Browns. I mean, one in 15, oh, and 16 people still showing the fact that we were, I mean, hell take a look at the, uh, Take a look at the Jaguars. Jaguars mm-hmm. was six and ten, and their stadium's got like five thousand people in it. Yeah, they have the top like section of the stadium like tarped off. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on, we were one in 15, 0 and sixteen. People were still busting down the door to get in there, and and that to me, you've got to respect that, and and you you've got you can't discount that. You can't take advantage of that, and that's maybe one of the things I'd like to see a little bit more. Are our fans? being genuinely appreciated not just let's sprinkle some freebies on them like genuinely appreciated because you're not going to find better fans anywhere and like i said i'm not being a homer on that um i mean i've seen it firsthand it's just you know and just wait till we're good like i said that was the thing that killed me i worked every game last season and every time i sat there because that was the one thing like i said i get emotional quick when I worked for the team and we were, we were just terrible for a lot of those years, I used to get my car and I, I would wait as long as I possibly could to drive away from the stadium because I, what killed me was just driving past people that were just like physically, you could just tell that they were just, they were not in a good place because of what had just happened in that stadium. And it's, yeah. it's a little bit crazy when you think about it. I mean, you got people spending their hard earned money. They're working all week spending their hard-earned money to come watch our team. And it just killed me that we didn't provide for them what they paid for. They, they paid to watch an amazing team, and they didn't get to see that. And, and I just felt like I, I didn't like the fact that I was a part of, um, you know, an organization that just did that to a customer. I, I just, to me, I don't know, because I watched my dad, I watched my grandfather, my uncles, like, work hard. They were working-class people. And, and to see us not providing – you know, the product that, that, that they were expecting, man, it would, it would upset me. Cause I'm like, dude, we just ruined this guy's whole week and it's freaking Sunday. <laughs> this guy's going to be miserable for the whole week until next week. until we can redeem ourselves. And um, so for me last year, when I'm sitting in that booth and I'm watching this, this team kind of this rebirth and there's only 12,000 people in the stands because of COVID. I'm like, ah, oh, man, like I just, I just wish yeah. that place could have been packed so our fans could have finally gotten a taste of what they deserve. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine what the stadium would have been like <laughs> if it was packed and we clinched the playoffs. It, it would have been that absolutely been incredible. incredible. Dude, that game that we beat the Steelers, they, they, I mean, come on, that, that would have been bananas. I, I mean, oh, bananas. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and, and hopefully this season we'll get there. I like the fact that we got an extra home game. 
um, you know, against Arizona, that's going to be great. And hopefully our governor, um, and like I said, not to get political, but I, I mean, just, I just hope our governor opens things up. I, and I don't think I'm not getting political when I say at least we've got the benefit of other teams opening up fully right now and it's going well. So let's just hope that that continues, that other teams that have opened up well continue to not show spikes and just crazy nonsense. And let's get back to normal because, man, I mean, I think if this team, um, you know, continues to get good, it's going to the city's going to rise with them, you know, and, and I agree. That'll be special. It'll be a special thing. I know from personal experience to our listeners, I was a sport management major and I had Tony as professor. But for those who don't know, in order to help your students learn and grow within the world of sports, how do you relate your experience working with the Browns through to them? I have some idea already, but for our listeners. Well, for me, I, I mean, I think my biggest thing is this, like I said, having grown up a Steelers fan, when I look back at that and I realized just how, because as like I said, at, at some point there was a disconnect for me and the Browns to the point where I left. So I think many people would consider me, you know, it'd be okay for me to be bitter or to hate the team, whatever. I just, I can't find that in me because, uh, you know, having did what I did for as long as I did it, I just can't help but be passionate about it. And, um, you know, the, the, the funny thing is when I came here to BW, like I was a BW grad, I've always been big on BW. I feel like that's the other um, just amazing thing. I, I consider myself very fortunate in the fact that I was able to go from the Browns to BW because the one thing that drives me is I, I pride myself on working hard. I, I've always, that's always been my motivation. Like I always look to the guy to the right and the left of me and I'm like, I'm going to bury these dudes. Like there's no way that the, whoever's to the right or the left of me is going to outwork me. Okay. So being hardworking, but just having passion for what you do, being passionate about what you do. And I mean, I feel like, you know, with the Browns, with the BW, no matter what it is, I can't help. And you probably see, I mean, I can't help but talk about it and get passionate about it. And I feel like you know, that for me would be my wish for any of my students when they graduate from here, find something that you are passionate about and do it. Because like I said about this job that I'm currently in right now, I mean, I mean it when I say I'm passionate to the point where the worst part about my job is the fact that it takes me three minutes to walk here. I wish I could walk faster. I'm just not fit. Um, <laughs> but if I could get here in two minutes, that means I'd have an extra minute to sit here and to do this job for even an extra minute a day would be awesome. I mean, that's seven minutes a week. You add that up over the course of my, hopefully my time here, that'll be a lot of time, but that's the thing, man. Just do what you're doing, do it well, do it hard, you know, work hard, but be passionate about it and get into it, man. You know, that used to be the thing that frustrated me. I'd have people that worked at the Browns 10, 15, 20 years, and they didn't know anything about the team. And it's like, how do you not know anything about the team? Like do your homework, do your research. Like if you're working, no matter where you're working, man, just find out about that company and get passionate about it. Like get behind it. I had a student the other day, we were doing a project in my intro class and um, we were talking about the history of um, Baldwin Wallace. And, you know, and this kid, he's like, ah, oh, Professor Dick raises his hand. He's like, hey, I don't know if you know this or not. He said, but um, John Baldwin, who founded Baldwin Wallace, like, 
we were one of the first schools to let in people of color, let in women, you know, let anybody who wanted a college education come and get a college education. I'm looking like, yeah, no, I knew that. I, I mean, of course I knew that. Like I, I, I went to BW, like those are things that, you know, who goes to a school and doesn't research what you're, you know, what's going on at your university. And I feel that way about, you know, the Browns. And I think that's what another thing that separates our fans from other fans it's just our knowledge, like our general knowledge of the history of the team. I feel like a lot of, especially Browns backers, they have a, they're pretty well versed in the history of the team. And I think that's what allows for the passion. Because if you look at the first 10 years of this franchise, I, I dare you to find any other franchise in any other sport for a 10 year span who is as dominant as the Cleveland Browns were. And a lot of people find that hard to believe because they're like, wow, what about the Boston Celtics? We were even more dominant than that. I mean, even more dominant than the Boston Celtics for their run. And, and, and look it up. I mean, the first 10 years, I mean, think about it. We were, we were a brand new team. In the first 10 years of our existence, we played in 10 championship games. We won seven championships. Otto Graham, I mean, Otto Graham retired. Okay, this is how crazy Otto Graham is. Otto Graham plays nine years, wins a championship, retires. He's down fishing, down in Florida, just doing what he wants to do. Paul Brown calls him. It's like, listen, we got this guy, George Raderman, that took over for you. George is a great guy, but we're not going to win a championship with him. Could you just come back and, and just play one more year? Autogram, huh, you know, puts the rod and reel down, drives up here, um, plays the season. They win another championship in 55. And as he's walking off the field, he tells Paul Brown, I'm going fishing. Like, I'm done here. Like, <laughs> I, I got to go. And, and it's amazing because if you get an opportunity, look up. Look up autogram stats in the 55 championship game. This guy was just game of his life. And, and, it, and he was just like, hey, man, I, I don't want to go fishing. <laughs> you know, so just think about that. And then, and then to go from him that in 55, and then two years later, we have this amazing draft where we draft a kid from Syracuse. Um, you know, Jim Brown draft a kid from Mississippi in the same draft, uh, Gene Hickerson, which is for as good as Jim Brown is, what, anytime you see one of his highlights – you're going to see big number 66 in front of him, Gene Hickerson, just trucking dudes. Um, so to, to go from that 10-year stretch, two years where it kind of, eh, and then we all of a sudden we got the greatest player of all time on our team, and then we rode him, you know, through to 64, win the championship, and a blues in the 65. But that stretch from 46 to 65, I mean, one of the most dominant organizations in all of sport. And um, so for me, yeah, it's how, how do you not get passionate about that? And I love, we had a couple coaches. We had a uh, Chudzinski who was a coach here, you know, Chud let me get up in front of the guys and, and I, I gave like a little history PowerPoint and I felt like, you know, I left that room and I was like, I'm getting ready to run through walls and the guys are getting all excited. And some of the guys didn't know about autogram. They didn't know about the 10 years. They didn't know about Marion Motley, who, if you ever want to, if you really want to watch some amazing highlights, watch Marion Motley running. This dude is like, when I say trucking people, like he is just, just clobbering dudes. And um, Bill Willis, once again, I mean, you watch Bill Willis in his line play. It's just amazing stuff. And, and it's like, how do you not get excited in, uh, about that? And if you're good, so if you're going into sport and you're going to be with a team, like get to know that team that you're working for and get, get passionate about it. Because at the end of the day, that's the difference between what we're doing in sport management and somebody who just gets a business degree. Somebody that gets in a business degree, like, ah, hey, I sell computer mouses. 
how, you know, nothing against the computer mouse. Obviously, I use it every day. You're never going to buy a T-shirt with this mouse on it and, and, and like, hey, yeah, you know, I'm whatever this is. I, I'm Microsoft, uh, you know, I'm team Microsoft cordless mouse. Nobody gives a crap. I mean, it's a product that's there. But when I'm selling when I'm with a team, I'm selling passion. Like, I'm passionate about my team. So on, on Monday, like I said, I, I, you know, I got depressed when people left on Friday. But think about this past fall on Monday after a Browns victory. Just think about how different everything was. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and people just didn't give a shit. Like we won. We beat the Steelers. We beat the Steelers. And, and, and then we beat the Steelers again in the playoffs. I mean, are you kidding me, dude? I, I mean, it, and it's one of those things where that, that's what you're selling. Like when you leave that game, all you're leaving with is memories. When you're watching that game, all you have is memories. And, and if you're not as passionate uh, as the people that you're selling your stuff to, you're not going to be successful. I mean, you're not going to last long. You can't work in 80. I'll tell you this, not going to work too many 80 to hundred hour weeks. If you're in a job that you're not passionate about, because that, that stuff will, I mean, trust me, that stuff will wear thin soon. So, you know, advice to anybody, man, find a job. When you get that job, just bust your ass, try to be the best at it, you know, and, and then be passionate about it. You know, I, I, I laugh. I told the story, Dave, I don't know if you remember or not. I, I applied for a teaching job one time. And, and, you know, when you get with educators, and I hate to say that because I guess I'm an educator now, you get these educators. And I think oftentimes educators think that like they're the greatest people and, and they're good people. But I had a guy, a superintendent of schools ask me, you're applying for this teaching job. Please tell me why teaching is the greatest job ever. It's the, it's the greatest profession. And I told him, I said, well, I don't think it is. And he kind of looked at me like he, he's like, well, what do you mean? Like you're applying for a teaching job. Why are you telling me this isn't the greatest job? I said that, to me, the greatest profession out there, the greatest job out there is the job that you have. So whatever job you have, that's the greatest job. Because when I was a groundskeeper for the Browns, you could say, you know, there's people who are like, the guy cut grass, not a great job. Hey, it put food on my table. It, 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 you know, it provided my kids opportunities to do things that they never got to do. It, you know, it, it paid my bills. It did what I needed to do. And, and because of that, I went to work every single day wanting to be the best at what I was doing. And that goes back to what I said when the guys in the front office said they were looking out the back window and it's like, Jesus, everything you do is 120 miles an hour. It's like, yeah, because my job, when you hire me, I want you to think every day that you got the greatest deal of your life when you hired me. Because I, I want to do a good job every day. And if you think about it in your regular, in your regular life, in your everyday life, if every single person that you had an interaction with lived their life that way, like I'm going to do the best job possible, just think how amazing life would be. Because I, I think about it all the time. Like when I go through that drive-through at McDonald's, Burger King, and you know, you get halfway down the road, half your shit's not in the bag. I mean, that's a perfect example. You know, that, that completely ruined my day because, uh, you know, my double whopper is not in there. And um, if somebody had just taken, you know, taken that job seriously and said, hey, man, I know I'm just putting sandwiches together, but somebody, somebody that's been busting their ass all day has been waiting for this burger. So if I get this right, I can continue their great day on. And then if I do a great job, maybe maybe I'll get elevated here and I'll become manager of the store or whatever. I mean, if everybody just took that approach, I think we'd be in a much better place. I, I just don't know. I, I don't know if everybody's willing to get that excited about uh, doing menial jobs, but they're not menial. I, I mean, I don't know. 
I'm probably rambling a little bit here, but I just, I, I think to sum it up, I would say my advice is just work hard, be passionate, and don't ever consider your job to be unimportant because every job is important. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hiring. I mean, if a job wasn't important, they wouldn't hire for that job, no matter what that job is. So that's kind of my advice. Didn't mean to burn your ears on that one, but man, I'm telling, well, that that's that's your fault. You should have known, Dave. You you know how yeah. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember those. You I remember you used to call them not rants, but you used to call them teachable moments. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So hopefully that was a teachable moment. I don't know. Yeah, and honestly, this whole thing's been great. And uh, Dom, you got any final uh, things you want to say? No, I thought it was an amazing interview. Um, the stories that you told were absolutely incredible. Um, so I just want to thank you for coming on the show. Well, I, a couple things. One, I want to thank you guys for having me on. I'm sorry. I know we were supposed to do it last week, and and, and I appreciate the fact that you were flexible with me on that. Um, and and two, I, you know, I want I want to commend you for doing this podcast because that's the one thing I've said to my students as we've gone through this past year. You know, students like, well, you know, they're not, you know, this team's not hiring or this position's not here right now and this and that. The one thing I keep telling people is keep doing something. And if you're passionate about this podcast, like put the time and effort into this like you're doing and just keep keep plugging away because who knows, you, you know, where the podcast may even lead. I mean, you have to treat everything as if, you know, this isn't an end, it's a means to an end. And if you, if you continue to do that, I, I think you're going to, you're going to do well. And I know every time I run into Dave, he's always working hard and, and that's good to see, you know, like I said, you never, you never really realize who's paying attention to what you're doing, but man, just go out there and just work hard, be passionate about what you're doing. And, and, you know, the other thing too, is um, I think sometimes we don't stop and pause and just be appreciative of the fact that we're here. We weren't guaranteed today. Okay, Monday, April 19th was not guaranteed any of us. There's no written contract that we got today. So the fact that we're here, we're able to talk. I mean, you know, hey, let, let's do it up, right? Because we don't know if April 20th is going to be there, you know, when we get, we get up in the morning. Hopefully it is, but we don't know that. So let's, mm -hmm. you know, squeeze out as much time as we can and get all we can out of each day. And, and I think if we all do that, we're all going to be in a better place. I agree 100%. I agree as well. And with that, I would like to also thank Tony as well for coming on. To our listeners, I want to say thank you. Have a great one. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you would like to hear more, feel free to listen to past episodes and look for new ones every Friday. And don't forget to follow us at deep.dive.sport on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for any update. And please let us know what you would like us to take a deep dive into next. As always, we are Deep Dive Sports. Until next time.